Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our text this morning. It's Matthew chapter 9. You can find these verses if you're using the Pew Bible on the rack in front of you on page 814. If you're using that Bible because you don't have one, we'd love for you to take it with you. We have plenty of those Pew Bibles, so it is our gift uh, to you. And whether you're using the Bible you brought or the Bible in the pew, our verses this morning are Matthew 9, reading verses 18 uh, down to verse uh, 34. You're going to be tired of me saying this over and over again, but Matthew is recording three miracles for us. Uh, It's the third time he's done this in two chapters. In fact, we see in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, three sets, three trifectas of three miracles. And finally, we have the final set of three miracles before we transition back in verse 10 to a period of discourse or of teaching. The thing about these miracles are they can't be limited just to three miracles. There's a whole lot going on here. Uh, Because in the first story, there's actually two miracles. In the second story, there's not one guy healed, there's two guys healed. In the third story, the guy that's healed seems to be healed in two different ways. It's as if Matthew is sort of culminating this picture of the miracles of Jesus as saying three, three, and then like a double three here at the end to make sure you don't miss it. All of these miracles pointing to one thing about Jesus. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So would you follow along with me? Matthew chapter 9. Verses 18 down through verse 34. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me again in prayer? Our Lord, we ask for and need uh, your help this morning. 
We especially need the help of your Holy Spirit to give us understanding of your word and application of it to our hearts. More than anything else, O oh God, I pray that we would see Jesus, who would see him for who he truly is. And seeing him, we would believe this very day. We ask it in his name. Amen. Whenever our family goes on a road trip, uh, my wife always prepares certain activities for our kids to do uh, on the road. Right? This kind of dates me. This is before everybody had iPads and smartphones for every road trip. Back then we had paper and pen, right? And so my uh, kids would have printed out for them word searches and crosswords and all sorts of you know, games to play with pen and paper. When they're younger, there's an especially popular game, you'll remember. It's the game Connect the Dots. Right? It's just a piece of paper. It's got a bunch of dots on it. And then next to the dots are numbers. And the kid's job is to just follow along, dot to dot, and draw this picture as they go. And you can almost hear the kids in the background, uh, in the back of the car, saying, I think it's a donkey. No, I think it's a zebra. No, it's a monkey. And they're kind of drawing the picture and finally figuring out what it is. They slowly see the object as the dots are connected for them. Well, Matthew did not have a dot-to-dot activity sheet for his disciples, for his followers, excuse me. But what did he have? He had pictures, images, events, activities, miracles that Jesus performed. And as Matthew is lining up for us, each of these miracles, we're to number nine or ten, however you count them, in just two chapters, what he's doing is he's connecting these dots so that we are slowly seeing who Jesus is. And in this section, these are the last of those miracles. And so Matthew is presenting to us, in a sense, a completed picture that we would see and behold who Jesus is. Now, the question is, we see it as all of us see it this morning, is how do we respond to who Jesus says that he is? Because as we get to the end of this section, we're going to see there are two responses and they are two very opposite responses. Some see Jesus and they accept him. Some see Jesus and they reject him. So here's what I want to show you this morning uh, in our series of miracles. It's simply this. As the picture of the Messiah is filled in, the heart of the people is laid bare. As the picture of the Messiah is filled in, the heart of the people is laid bare. Once we see who Jesus is, we no longer have any excuses. We either believe in him or we reject him. So that's going to be our outline this morning. We're going to follow just two parts. We're going to see how Matthew fills in the picture for us, and then we're going to see the response. So our first heading is that Jesus provides a clearer picture. Verses 18 to 33. It's the majority of our text. Jesus provides a clearer picture. Once we see the picture, we're going to see, secondly, that Jesus provokes a clearer response. He paints the picture, and he provokes the response just in the final two verses. First, let's see the clearer picture that Jesus paints in verses 18 to 33. There are three sections of healings here. But as I said earlier, there's something sort of doubled about each of these. There are really four different sort of groups that experience these healings. And something we see here is that Jesus has entered into new realms over which he demonstrates his authority. So we've seen the paralytic 
We've seen the woman with the fever. We've seen the leper. We've seen the, the, the sea that's calmed. We see the men who are oppressed by uh, the demons, and the demons are driven out. But Matthew's not done showing us all these different categories over which Jesus reigns supreme. And so we have more categories uh, in our text this morning. So under this heading that Jesus provides a clearer picture, let me just show you some of these pictures Jesus provides for us. The first image that we see, and this is an old one we've already seen, and that is that the, the sick are healed. The sick are healed. Verses uh, 18 to 22. If I was preaching just these verses and nothing else, I would probably title the sermon, The Power of Touch. Because we're going to see a couple of different times that touch plays a crucial role in Jesus' healing uh, ministry. We, so we ended last week with Jesus in Matthew's house having a meal with tax collectors and sinners. A couple of questions, some big questions about the meal and what does eating with Jesus look like for Christian discipleship. We pick up this week with Jesus still in the house. He's still eating and a ruler comes in. This probably means a ruler in the synagogue, somebody with some level of authority uh, in the Jewish tradition. And he comes in and he kneels before Jesus. He tells Jesus that his daughter has just died. But if Jesus will only come and lay his hand on her, she will live. It's pretty audacious, right? And a grieving, mourning father has for Jesus. So Jesus gets up and he, he follows the father out. And on his way, he is interrupted. You'll remember this story from some of the other gospels because we're annoyed in the other gospels that he's interrupted because we just want him to hurry up and get to the girl's house, right? Well, that's not the point that Matthew's making in his account. He's shown us these different areas of the power of Jesus. And so who does he meet on his way to the girl's home? Verse 20 a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. So he meets a woman, a woman who is, has a discharge of blood. I'm not going to get too gross with you this morning, but this is, you know, the doctors would call this hemorrhaging, right? And maybe this relates somehow to bearing children. It's unclear in the text, but it seems likely. And she, suffering for 12 years, just wants to get better. Likely, she's tried lots of different other solutions to get better, right? I mean, if you're suffering for 12 years, you're going to go to all the specialists you can find. And nobody can heal her, it seems. So she goes to Jesus, and she has this idea in her head. If she just touches the fringe of his garment, she'll be healed. As if Jesus is some sort of magical figure that emanates healing power. And if she can just touch him, then flowing through that touch sort of almost from his holiness to her illness, she will experience healing. But she knows as well as Jesus does that that's not really what the touch means in a situation like this. You see, if we go back to the Old Testament, specifically chapter 11 of the book of Numbers, we read that a woman who is experiencing what this woman is experiencing is declared unclean. She is ceremonially Unclean To add to the misery of her physical ailment of life is the fact that she is ceremonially unclean, which means that anyone she touches also becomes unclean. So for her to have this idea that she's going to go and touch Jesus, she has to know in the back of her mind that she is going to make this healer unclean. But she is so desperate to receive the cleansing power of Jesus 
she is willing to sneak up through the crowds and touch him. He turns when she touches him, verse 22. She sees him. I'm sorry, he sees her and he says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman is made well. Something significant happening here. What heals her? It's not the touch. Jesus is not magical. He's not a good luck charm, right? We just get close enough. It's sort of going to come off of him onto us. She, he tells the woman it's not her touch. Rather, it's her faith that's made her well. Now, it is her faith that has caused her at some level to touch him. But Jesus doesn't, doesn't mess with the touch. He doesn't need the touch. No, it is the faith of the woman. He is highlighting her faith as the instrument through which he heals her. So what is the first thing Jesus does and can do is he heals the sick. We've seen this before. We've seen this many times. In Mark's gospel, as soon as he heals her, people begin to wonder, well, now there's no, there's no time left to go and raise this girl from the dead. But just as there is here, Jesus goes and uh, goes to another even greater and more impressive miracle. Because not only does he heal the sick we see in verses 23 to 26 that he raises the dead the dead are raised by the power and authority of jesus the faith of this father who is called upon christ to come and who is home parallels the faith in chapter 8 i believe of the centurion because there's somebody who's sick and in need of help and on their behalf goes somebody else and it is the faith of that representative that is then brings about the blessing onto the one who so desperately needs it. And so just as the centurion asked for Jesus to heal his servant, so does the father coming to Jesus in faith represent the need for healing. Now, just as the, un, the, the bleeding woman is unclean, Numbers 11, if we keep reading the Old Testament ceremonial laws, we read in Numbers 19 that who else is unclean? people who have died. A dead body is considered unclean so that anyone who touches a dead body is also considered ceremonially unclean. So what does Jesus do when he gets to the house? He touches the girl. When the crowd crowd had been put outside, the scoffing crowd who doesn't believe he can do this, he's, he's foolish, he's mistaken, she's just dead, she's not asleep. Jesus goes in and he took her by the hand, and the girl arose. He took her by the hand. He did the act that would make him ceremonially unclean by touching a dead body. But the power and the authority of the very Son of God raises this young girl from the dead. This is the greatest power that Jesus has shown so far. Everything else pales in comparison to this. Stilling the storm, nothing. Healing the leper, nothing. Raising a man who is paralyzed to walk again, child's play, right? We're talking about somebody whose lungs are no longer functioning and into her dormant lungs are breathed the air of life. A woman whose heart has ceased to beat in a moment by the touch of Jesus rushes forth. That those muscles that have begun to atrophy, the skin that has begun to decay in the moment by the touch of the power of God. The dead is raised to life. There is no power like this in all of creation that Jesus here shows in just one touch. 
who will show us that the same thing will happen to him. That he who has the power over death, that when he goes into death himself, he goes with faith and confidence that he too will be raised from the dead. That his faithful God will bring him back from the tomb, will bring him back from the ground. And it is the confidence that we have. That when we too go to our own deaths, that when we too are dead and buried, we do so with faith in the only one who can touch and bring the dead back to life. This is a picture not only of the power of Jesus, it's a picture of the death and resurrection that he will experience, that we too in faith in him will follow. You see how the picture is becoming clearer for us. This is a big one, right, on the connect the dots. This shows us a whole lot of who he is. Because under Jesus, the sick are healed, the the dead are raised, and his busy day is not over yet. Because we see a a third healing and that the blind see. Verses 27 to 31. The blind see as Jesus is passing on after he has healed the woman, after he has raised the girl. Two blind men follow him, crying out for him to have mercy on them. They go into the home and he heals them. Now, their faith is shown in the name that they call him. They call him the son of David. What does that mean? They they believe that he is the heir of David, that he has come in the lineage of King David. He has come as God's Messiah. Their faith in his healing power is tied up in who he is, that he is the royal son of David. Now, unlike the sick woman and the dead girl, the blind men are not ceremonially unclean, but they are still in the Old Testament referred to as those who have a blemish. What a a word to refer to a person, right? But if any of Aaron, the priest's sons, were blind, they were not allowed to go into the, the Holy of Holies to offer the sacrifice because they had a blemish. You see, all of these are results of the fall, whether unclean or blemished. And what does Jesus do with the blind men? Verse 29, how does he heal them? He touches their eyes. The power of his touch. Now, their eyes are opened and he warns them, see that no one knows about it. He doesn't want anybody to hear about this. This is a theme we've seen it once before in Matthew. We'll see it a couple more times. We see it in all of the other gospels that Jesus somehow has come to do a bunch of stuff, but he also wants a lot of what he's done to be a secret. It doesn't really make sense, does it? Why is he doing it for people to see, but also in secret? Well, it's interesting, he actually takes these two blind men, it seemed, into a house so that everyone around wouldn't see uh, what he's doing. You see, these miracles, they declare who Jesus is. They proclaim who he is. But for those who don't believe, they can really become a distraction, right? Like they, they can become the show that the crowds gather around, the crowds that can be blind to Jesus, just want to see the fancy and cool and powerful things that he does. They don't care about the Messiah. They just want the miracles. But his word doesn't work. Word spreads. His fame goes throughout the district. The, pra- the, cloud- the crowds keep coming to him. Then we reach the final of the four miracles in verses 32 and the first part of 33. We see very simply here that the mute speak. And as they were going, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute 
was brought to him. So here's the twofold healing here. Both the physical, I'm sorry, both the spiritual oppression of the demon as well as the effect of that oppression, which is the physical problem of not being able to speak. He was mute. Now, in many places in scripture, uh, that word is translated deaf. The word itself can mean either one. Again, we can go to the Old Testament and read that they both constitute a blemish on someone as being blind does. You can understand why in that day, uh, without some of the technology we have, if somebody was deaf, they were likely also mute. And if they were mute, they were also thought to be suffering from deafness. And so Jesus comes and he drives out the demon oppression. The second time we've seen this, Jesus exercises power over the spiritual forces of evil. Just drives him out, cast him out. And as a result of the demon being cast out, what happens to the mute man? He spoke. You see, this happens every time. The, the girl who is dead, she rises up. The one who are blind, they see. The man who is mute speaks the power of Jesus to heal and to restore those who are affected by the fall. When we put these four accounts together, we see a couple themes. We see the one I've already mentioned is that those who are unclean and who are blemished are touched and healed by the power of Jesus in such a way that he would be rendered and thought to be unclean and blemished himself because he believes he has come to fulfill Isaiah 53, to bear our diseases. Uh, to take on our illnesses, to, to bear the effects of the fall and the very wrath of God upon the cross. These are just tastes and foreshadows, just a touch to bear our disease. We also see this theme of faith. It pops up every time. The theme of faith, a father who comes for his daughter, the, the, the woman who touches and Jesus says, your faith has made you well. He actually asks the blind men, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they say, yes. And the final, the mute man, it's not him that believes, it's his friends who bring him, just as the, the friends of the paralyzed man brought him to be healed. And I want you to see, it's not that Matthew is showing us the four people that have the greatest faith in the region of Galilee. Now, some of their faith is kind of, it's just, it's kind of not great, right? I mean, the woman has this weird view of the magical touch of the garments of Jesus. Matthew is not showing us sort of superhuman faith that we have to mount ourselves up to. What he's showing us is the immeasurable power of Jesus is accessed by something so simple as believing in him. That's the question, not what work have you done, not what words have you said, Right? Not what group are you part of? Not what church do you go to? The question that Jesus asks are, is simply this. Do you believe? To those who believe, they see displayed for them the power of God. A power that has extended out over every realm. You notice Matthew sort of fills in the things Jesus hasn't done yet. Right? We haven't seen him heal uh, a blind man yet. We haven't seen him make a mute man speak. We haven't, definitely haven't seen him raise someone from the dead yet. Sort of reminds me of those times when you have to apply for a job or you apply 
to a college to get into and you get your resume all ready for the application process and you look through your resume, you have a couple other people look at it, make sure it looks good, and then you realize you have some holes in your resume, right? You're applying for a teacher job, but you've never worked with kids, right? And so you need to you need to touch up your resume. Maybe you should go work with kids for a while, right? Or you want to go to engineering school, but you never took any math classes. Maybe you need to take some math classes. You sort of uh, uh, fill in the holes in your resume. Now, Jesus doesn't have any holes in his resume, right? But what Matthew's doing is he's showing us all of the credentials of Jesus. He has authority and power over all of these things, over all of these places. And one author says he is grouping together his messianic credentials. Anyone can claim to be the Messiah. Jesus shows us that he is actually the Messiah of God. Turn back with me to Isaiah 35. We see here essentially a job description for the work of the Messiah. What is God going to do when he comes for his people? Isaiah 35, beginning in verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. God will come and save his people. Verse 5. Then, so when that happens, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, Then the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. God will come and save his people. And how do you know what it's going to look like when he comes to save his people? The mute are going to sing for joy. The blind will see. The sick are healed. The dead are raised to life. It's as if... Matthew is preparing the resume for Jesus so that people know that he is the one and only Messiah of God. So if we go back to Matthew, and if we turn a couple more pages in chapter 11, we see a question posed to Jesus about who he is. And it's John's disciples, Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. They come to Jesus with a question. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... That's all that he's done in chapters 8 and 9. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the guy that's fulfilling Isaiah 35? Is this what it looks like for God to save? And Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached. To them. It's as if Jesus is preparing for this very question. He is showing us all of his credentials, all of his accomplishments to be the Messiah. So that when John's disciples come at that very moment, that one question job interview, are you the one or is there somebody else coming? Jesus does not say, yeah, I'm him. Because anybody can say that. He says, look at what I've done. Look at what, is, what has happened. Look at the signs of the messianic age. Look at the signs of the new arrival of the kingdom of God. Matthew is saying, I've connected all the dots for you. Now what do you see? John's disciples saw the Messiah. 
very God, a very God who's come to save his people, to bring in the new kingdom, to restore all what is broken, to bring about the restoration of the new heavens and the new earth. Matthew doesn't tell us this. He shows us this. The picture is clear. You cannot deny who Jesus claims to be. And yet, in those final two verses, we see that not everyone has eyes to see. Not everyone has eyes to see. So I want you to see verses 33 and 34 that Jesus provokes a clearer response. There's, there's no middle ground anymore. You're either with him or against him. He provokes a clearer response. You see, when we submit our resume, when we apply for a job, we're either accepted or rejected, right? We see here within his hearers, his viewers, the crowds accept him, but the Pharisees reject him. You see how the crowds uh, accept him. They are, the, the, Matthew tells us, that the crowds marveled, verse 33, and never was anything like this seen in Israel. This isn't talking about just the mute man. He's talking about everything he's done from the beginning of chapter 8. In fact, we've already seen the crowds respond like this. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter 7, the crowds are astonished. And now at the end of the, the, the account of all that he's done, the crowds marvel. They have never heard anything like this in Israel. So there's been sort of scattered people that claim to be the Messiah here or there, but they can't do anything like this. If you're a sports fan... Uh, you will know that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player ever, right? But after Michael Jordan retired, everybody kept asking the question, who's the next Jordan? And these poor guys would come and they'd say, that guy's the next Jordan. And he wasn't good enough and on and on and on, right? In this day, everyone's asking and expecting the Messiah to come. And so they're looking around for it. They're seeing signs everywhere, even when they're not there. And the crowd declares together, there's nothing like this. There is no one like Jesus. Nobody has this range of power and authority, right? Nobody heals this frequently. Nobody can do it so easily with a touch, with a word, with a thought. They echo the words of the prophet Jeremiah who says, There is none like you, Lord. They have seen the landscape of their day, and there is none like Jesus. And so they marvel at him. But that's not the only response. Because the other response to accepting him is rejecting him in verse 34. And here we see the Pharisees, quite honestly, they kind of go off their rocker here. Verse 34, the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Okay, what does that mean? It means, number one, that the Pharisees cannot deny the miracles of Jesus, right? They see them happening. They just want a different explanation for them. Jesus' explanation is he's the Messiah of God. Believe on him and you will be saved, right? The Pharisees, they don't want that. So they have to find a different explanation for the miracles of Jesus. This is incredibly relevant today. Because I imagine there are some of you here today that don't believe these miracles, It's just old words on an old page. It's just the disciples sort of making up these stories about Jesus. What's fascinating is the people that hated Jesus and followed him around, they couldn't even deny what he was doing. 
If the haters of Jesus in his day can't deny his miracles, then we in our day have no leg to stand on. They saw it. They just had to come up with another reason why Jesus had all of that authority. Their reason was that it wasn't God. It was, must have been Satan. It must have been the, the spiritual force of evil. Now, this would honestly be comical if it wasn't so tragic that they believed this. And this is like the classic sore loser, right, explaining away why they lost. And Jesus is going to get to this later. He's driving out the emissaries of Satan. Their logic is entirely backwards that he cast them out by the prince of demons. That doesn't work that way. They're on the same team. This rising opposition will only continue. This claim will only continue. Jesus references it in Matthew 10, verse 25. He says, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? He's preparing his disciples to be maligned and slandered and mocked. You see in the Pharisees' response their hardness of heart. They can't deny what they see. They just don't want to see it. Their hearts are so hard, they refuse to see the Messiah for who he truly is. I imagine some of you here this morning are in that same place. You see all these miracles, but you have some other explanation for it in your mind. It's got to be something else. It can't be that this is actually the Messiah of God, to whom I must repent and believe on him to receive this same healing and forgiveness, and eternal life. Here is a piece, every piece of evidence, but they still don't believe. I wonder if your heart is so hard, it doesn't matter how much evidence you see, you're still not going to believe. You see, we can be guilty of making God who we want him to be. When all the evidence says otherwise, it doesn't matter because we're going to make God who we want him to be. We're like the kid that takes the connect the dots picture and says, I don't want that. I'm going to draw my own picture. I'm going to connect the dots in my own order. Our hardness of heart means that we can make God out to be whoever we want him to be. And Jesus shatters these expectations to pieces. He didn't come to support your side. He didn't come to back up your cause. Right? He didn't come to do it in your way. No, he came to proclaim forgiveness and to promise restoration. The crowds marvel at this. We have to wonder as we end, do they actually accept it? There's a clear difference between rejecting Jesus and believing on him, but there can also be a difference between marveling at Jesus and believing on him. We can walk out this morning and say, I saw lots of wonderful things in that Bible story but it doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't affect my life. It doesn't affect my faith. The question that Jesus puts to the two blind men is the question he puts to us this morning. Do you believe? Jesus has shown us who he is. He has connected all of the dots for us. The hard heart says that picture is not what Matthew says it is. We pray that God softens our hearts as he asks us the question, do you believe? Matthew tells us he is the Messiah of God, so believe in him.
Let's pray. Our Lord, you know the hardness of our hearts that so often plague us. You know that we can be skeptics and doubters and explain away these pictures or see them and claim they mean nothing or have no effect on us. Lord, I pray you would protect those this very hour that look at this like the Pharisees do with a hardness of heart and you would soften their hearts to believe today. I pray for those who would marvel at the things of Jesus but who would still refuse to put their trust in him and want to go about and do it our own way. Lord, give us that gift of faith. Lord, lead us today to see that it is not the strength or power of our belief but it is your power and it is your authority to heal, forgive, and restore us. Lead us by your spirit to believe upon you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.